like to invite you to open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 43 this evening as we continue in the book of Joshua chapter 10 verses 16 through 43. Before we read God's word, we'll have a time of prayer, then a little bit of background, and I'll be again reading at verse 16. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we yeah, hear these maybe difficult passages to our 21st century North American ears. May, may we hear, hear your, your hatred of sin and hear, too, of, of your wrath and judgment. And may we see, too, how that was poured out on Christ. Father, help us as we go through these passages and realize what the enemy faces without Christ. Father, it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a a bit of background before I begin reading. Last week, Joshua and Israel, they had marched to the aid of their ally, Gibeon. Remember that, kids? The Gibeonites, the ones who kind of tricked Israel into making a treaty with them because... Israel wasn't supposed to make treaties and and peace, have peace with other Canaanites. But they thought the Gibeonites were from a far off land. Remember they showed up with worn out clothes and sandals and, and mold and stale bread. And they tricked the Israelites. Not really that realizing that actually the Gibeonites were their neighbors, but they made a treaty and they made a vow in the name of the Lord and they kept that vow. We realize that, you know, we wondered, how could Joshua have known that they weren't from far away? He should have prayed to God. He should have inquired of the Lord. But last week, we do see Joshua praying, don't we? As five Canaanite kings attack the Gibeonites and Israel comes to their aid and Joshua prays and the sun stands still and Israel crushes the enemy. The Lord told Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So Israel's been fighting against these Canaanites. And the Lord actually killed more of these Canaanites with hailstones than the Israelites did with their own swords. And the sun stood still. And so did the moon. And here we get into a bit more of what was going on in these battles between the Israelites and these Canaanites. In Joshua 10, we get into a little bit more of the detail of what happened that day when Israel conquered. Joshua 10, beginning at verse 16, hear the very word of God. Now the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave of Makedah. When Joshua was told that the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makedah, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. 
but the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda, and no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, Come here, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. Then Joshua struck and killed the kings and hung them on five trees. And they were left hanging on the trees until evening. At sunset, Joshua gave the order, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had been hiding. At the mouth of the cave, they placed large rocks, which are there to this day. That day, Joshua took Makeda. He put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. He left no survivors, and he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makeda to Libna and attacked it. The Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand. The city and everyone in it Joshua put to the sword. He left no survivors there, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Libna to Lachish. He took up positions against it and attacked it. The Lord handed Lachish over to Israel, and Joshua took it on the second day. The city and everyone in it he put to the sword, just as he had done at Tilibna. Meanwhile, Horam, king of Gezer, he had come up to help Lachish, but Joshua defeated him and his army until no survivors were left. Then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Lachish to Eglon. They took up positions against it and attacked it. They captured it that same day and put it to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it, just as they had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up to, from Eglon to Hebron and attacked it. They took the city and put it to the sword together with its king, its villages, and everyone in it. They left no survivors, just as at Eglon. They totally destroyed it and everyone in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned around and attacked Debir. They took the city, its king, and its villages and put them to the sword. Everyone in it they totally destroyed. They left no survivors. They did to Debir and its king as they had done to Libna and its king and to Hebron. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. This is the word of the Lord. It's, it's a difficult passage to hear, but as we, 
we hear it, we begin by hearing that the victory seals these five kings' fate. The five Canaanite kings, they, they tried to, to strike first last week. They tried to attack Gibeon and draw Israel out. But we found out that the Lord was fighting for Israel. They were struck by hailstones, and they were struck down by Israel's swords too. And those five kings, what happened to the five kings? We learn of that here. They run, they hide in a cave in Makeda, seeking refuge, but what they find is that this cave ends up being their own tomb. Joshua seals these kings in the cave with with large stones, and then he, he posts a guard covering the entrance while the rest of Israel's forces pursue the enemy's armies to stop them before they reach their fortified cities. The enemy's on the run. Their kings are held in the cave. The destruction of the enemy is certain. They will not escape judgment. That's not only true for the Canaanites, but we, we know that's true for all the enemies who are in rebellion against God. God promises to one day destroy all who oppose Him. Don't we hear of this throughout Scripture and in Revelation? Satan and his army's fate is sealed Our Lord is with us, as with Joshua, fighting for his people. Yet we recognize that our our battle is not with flesh and blood, but, but with demonic forces, with the forces of evil. We need to put on the full armor of God, but we are in a battle. There is an enemy. But though the Lord is hurling hailstones here at the enemy, it doesn't mean that, that Israel's army, God's people, can just sit back in the midst of the battle and sit on their hands and just be spectators and watch God fight. Israel, too, is to attack, and we see that here. They're to, to seal up the cave, post a guard, be on the alert, take the fight to the enemy before the enemy can hunker down behind their city walls. And we too, we, we need to be on the alert. Yes, the Lord fights for us, but we too are to put on that full armor of God and to go into battle. We're also to be on our guard as God's people. We're to guard, as Scripture tells us, our hearts and our minds against the enemy. Paul tells us how we should do that in in one way in Philippians where he writes, Do not be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything, everything. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, in your minds, in Christ Jesus. We fight differently against the enemy today than Israel did against the Canaanites. We remain at war. We bring things, everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving to God. And that's where we find the peace of God. That's how our, our hearts will be guarded 
Our minds will be guarded in Christ Jesus. We need to stand guard and fight the enemy as, as Christians today, as the church, guarding against things like, you know, maybe false teaching that can creep into the church. Doesn't Paul warn of this? Guarding our hearts against things like, like jealousy, which can, can show up in congregations or, or envy or greed or anger that can kind of wedge their way and divide even families. We need to guard our hearts. Didn't we see division during the pandemic within congregations as the enemy used something as, as seemingly innocent as a mask to bring division within Christ's church? We must be on our guard. We need to gather as God's people in His, His Word, which is a, a light to our path, a lamp for our feet, being on our guard, standing firm in the faith, being people of courage, and encouraging one another as we gather together and spur one another on. So while God is at work fighting for His people, He also works through His people as they bring the fight to the Canaanites, pursuing, attacking, preventing their, their return and escape. And Joshua, we find, rallies the troops in verse 19, telling them, the Lord your God has given them into your hand. But that doesn't mean they just sit on their hands. We notice that while the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man, there were a few who were left, who did reach their fortified cities, we're told in verse 20, and we'll find that throughout the book of Joshua, and then even worse in the book of Judges, that there's going to be pockets of resistance in the promised land. The battle for Israel is, is, never seems to be over for this nation. Yes, Israel has conquered, but resistance within remains. Especially, we'll find the, the religious resistance as idolatry remains a a temptation and a snare for God's people. Don't Christians understand this in a, a spiritual sense? You know, Satan has been crushed, right? God's people freed from sin slavery, but, but pockets of resistance still remain. Maybe pockets of resistance even within the church as Jesus speaks of wheat and tear. Pockets of resistance within ourselves as we struggle with that old sinful nature yet. Yes, we have been redeemed, forgiven, and freed from sin slavery, yet we struggle. We understand the battle that continues in, in each one of us against the enemy we remember those words maybe from 1 Peter of, of the devil prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And we know too that battle within that Paul speaks of in Romans 7. You remember that? Where he talks about the good I would do, I do not do, but uh, the evil that I would not do, I I do. There's this, this battle going on, almost a, like a civil war within pockets of resistance. We know we 
continue in this life to to struggle with sin, and we must fight the good fight and put to death the old sinful nature. Flee to the cross, look for forgiveness, pray that the Lord will help us to, to want to do His will and to flee and hate sin. Knowing that one day the pockets of resistance will be gone when Christ returns or we go to be with Him. So while resistance remains, it won't remain forever as, as we find, secondly, the enemies are made subject. Now this, this section seems harsh to our 21st century American ears. The cave was sealed. It was shut. It was guarded. The five kings, though, are then, after they, they chase down the enemy, they come back and they bring the five kings out of this cave. And what follows is described by some as almost a, like a symbolic a ceremony. Some writers even say it's kind of sacramental-like uh, in a sense. As Joshua calls Israel's commanders, the military leaders, forward and says, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. It signifies the real God-given victory over the enemy, and it is to be remembered. It is to strengthen their faith and their trust in God who will fight for them in the future. We read of, of this in a sense many times, but may we understand it in a with a different phrase of making one's enemies a footstool under one's feet. I mean, this is one of the awesome promises that we read of in the call to worship that is prophesying the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one to come that King David wrote. When David writes, the Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A few verses later in the same psalm, David writes, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Repeatedly in the New Testament, this psalm, Psalm 110, is, is quoted and attributed to Jesus. Paul writes, too, about putting the enemy under one's feet in 1 Corinthians. In that, that powerful chapter, chapter 15, when he writes, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
death will be under the foot of Christ, that last enemy, like one of these kings, in total subjection, destroyed. What a day that will be. Joshua uses this this physical ceremony to, to strengthen Israel's leader's faith. Remember this great victory God gave you. Believe God's promises to fight for you. And Joshua then speaks the same words to Israel's leaders that, that God used to strengthen Joshua himself. Do not be afraid, he says. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. We need to hear that as Christians today. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight, he says in verse 25. And then here the kings are killed, made a public spectacle of as they are hung on a tree. And Joshua, he obeys God's law, taking them down at sunset and buries the kings in a cave where they first sought refuge at Makeda. This is another monument of stones testifying to to what happens to those who stand against God, who try to stop His plan of salvation. Our enemies are no match for our Creator King. The enemies under His foot. Isn't this a picture too of what Adam and Eve were promised so many centuries prior? right after their sin in the garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. Don't we have a picture of Christ crushing the head of that serpent, Satan? You will strike his heel. And despite the uprising against Israel, we find that the conquest thirdly advances The chapter began with the Canaanite kings kind of banding together against the Gibeonites and God's people, Israel. Not only does their alliance fall apart, they're actually routed and their cities destroyed. And they found themselves literally fighting against God. And that continues in the New Testament. Didn't Paul learn this the hard way on the Damascus Road of of who he was actually fighting against as is he tried to destroy God's people. When the Lord, our Lord, confronts Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then the world might try to to destroy the church, God's people, but we know Christ will build his church. He'll actually take enemies and turn them into family. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Took out that that rebellious heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. Created faith in our hearts so that we turned away, repenting from sin, and turned towards Christ in faith. Turning enemies into family transforming us into the people of God. But here, one by one, the the seven cities listed fall, sometimes taking up 
positions and laying siege, other times attacking immediately with a sword. Either way, the outcome was the same for the enemy. The destruction was total. There, was, there were no survivors left like Jericho. These cities were devoted to destruction. And though Israel had to engage in battle themselves, they were victorious because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Again, it's hard for our 21st century ears to hear of entire Canaanite communities being devoted to destruction. Yet we heard that way back in in Genesis 15, God spoke to Abraham and said it was when basically the Canaanites, the Amorites, when their sin would come to full measure, that's when his people would go into Canaan. The sin has brought this upon themselves. This devoting entire peoples to destruction may sound unjust. But as God inflicts His judgment through Israel, we need to say that it, it is entirely righteous and just. The whole human race, all of Adam and Eve's descendants, are sinful and justly deserve God's righteous wrath. In fact, if we demand justice from God, we, we'd be demanding, demanding our own eternal condemnation. For we know God's Word tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each one of us here. We don't want justice. What we come here is Desiring God's mercy. His lamentation says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. We truly long for God's mercy. And there cannot be true mercy without God's justice being satisfied. This leads us, doesn't it, to the cross where God's justice and mercy meet as a The psalmist puts it in Psalm 85, verse 10, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Do we see that if it were not for God's grace? Like the Canaanites, we too would be justly devoted to destruction. But at the cross, Christ was devoted to destruction. The destruction we deserve. Jesus Christ carrying upon Himself the the weight of humanity's sin and guilt in His own body, body hung on a tree like these other kings made a spectacle. Like a like a wicked pagan Canaanite king hung on a cross with thorns, a mocked for you and for me. It's there at the cross in Christ who became a, a curse for us as He hung on this cursed tree where mercy triumphs as the wrath of God 
for our sins is satisfied as it's poured out not upon us but upon his own son. The kings of the world cannot deliver. The five kings of Canaan died. They, they hung on the trees. They were buried. They were entombed in the caves, sealed with stones. And we're told here that they're still there as of the day of this writing. But with Christ, our crucified king, entombed in a cave, the stone moved on that third day to reveal it was empty. This king of kings and lord of lords raised, resurrected. This sacrifice satisfies God's justice so that all who would repent and believe in this king, Jesus Christ, will receive mercy. Mercy. God's judgment. It will come. Jesus Christ who reigns at the Father's right hand will will come, we're told, we confess, to judge the living and the dead. But we need not fear. For by trusting in Him, our sins are forgiven. But for those who refuse it, refuse Jesus' offer of grace and mercy and forgiveness, and the gift of His righteousness, it will face judgment when He comes again. But today is the day of salvation, the time of grace. So as Christians, perhaps we, we cringe as we hear passages like this one where the Canaanites were conquered and, and devoted to destruction due to their sin reaching its full measure against God. Yet this is only a fraction a small fraction of the judgment to come. And we gather here knowing that we have found mercy because we put our trust in Christ. Yet there are those in this world who maybe have not heard or have not yet believed that that need to be called, warned of the judgment to come and pointed to the, the king who could not remain sealed in the cave. The stone was rolled away as he rose again from the dead. And as he put that last enemy, death, under his foot, we too find victory in Jesus Christ. We have found mercy in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for sending the true King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, to hang on a cross, to die like he was some pagan Canaanite because he took on our sins, who was buried, but the, the tomb could not contain him. As the stone was rolled away and he was raised and he ascended and reigns at your right hand, it's in him we put our trust. Father, may our faith in him grow. And may we, as your people, still continue to put on the full armor of God and battle the enemy. And may we be proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And may you continue to turn enemies into family as they hear and believe in the one who reigns at your right hand. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.